There's an interesting story that unfolds 40 days after Jesus was born. We're only about seven days out from our Christmas celebrations, but 40 days after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, there they would go through a purification process as well as dedicate Jesus to the Lord. Purification was needed because the birthing process made one spiritually unclean. And I don't, it's not a physical, certainly there are physical elements to birth uh, that would make you unclean, but this is a, a spiritual cleanliness. Um, according to the Old Testament law, virtually everything involving bodily fluids made one spiritually unclean. That is, uh, unprepared to come into the presence of God. Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to offer the necessary sacrifices for purification of their little family uh, after the 40-day window of waiting had, had come and gone. While there, they also dedicated Jesus as the law required. A payment was required at the temple in Jerusalem for every firstborn male within a family. This payment was made to commemorate God's deliverance of Egypt from uh, slavery, uh, deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. Um, perhaps you remember that story, uh, Israel's exit from Egyptian slavery. If you remember it, you'll remember the 10th plague, right? Uh, a pretty dire, uh, serious plague that claimed the lives of every firstborn Egyptian in each of the Egyptian households, and the lives were spared of those whose door frames were marked with blood. Uh, the Israelites had been directed to mark their homes with blood, and that uh, God would hover over, He would pass over those homes, protecting them from the angel of death. Of course, we know that the blood of the lamb that was put on the door frames of the Israelite houses was a foreshadowing of Christ's blood that marks our hearts and our lives, our dependence upon him, and saves us from death as well. After this deliverance, though, for Israel to remember God's care of them, every firstborn in Israel had to be redeemed through the payment of a five-shekel ransom or redemption price, five shekels of silver. And so Mary and Joseph must have paid that upon their visit. Now, all this was pretty straightforward. Going to the temple 40 days after your firstborn son uh, was born, pay, uh, going through the purification process, paying the redemption cost for your firstborn son, it was significant, but all this was fairly predictable. Um, what wasn't expected during the visit to the temple were two people that this little family met with, Simeon and Anna. Simeon is described in Luke chapter 2 as a righteous man. Most likely he was a priest. He hung out around the temple because God had promised him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. Here's uh, Simeon's response as he takes Jesus into his arms. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So Simeon's excited. He, he set his eyes on the Messiah, albeit as a little baby, yet to grow up and minister to the nation. But it's a dramatic moment. Uh, 
Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph marveled at what Simeon had to say about Jesus. But that's not all that happened. Uh, they also ran into a lady named Anna. And Luke writes, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She left she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. We look forward to the consummation of our redemption even today. We look forward to the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Worth noting about Anna is that she never left the temple. She was there all the time, night and day, worshiping, fasting, praying. It's a significant life, right? She had been married, Luke tells us, for seven years. Uh, let's imagine she got married at or about the age of 15. Um, she might have been widowed as early as 22, 23. She stays in the temple some 50 years, up until the age of 84. It seems to be that Luke's implying she passed away at the age of 84. 50 years of fasting praying in the temple. Thinking about Anna's life and her role in the Christmas story, I wonder to what extent our worship includes the activities of prayer and fasting. It's true that Anna's life was unique, but are we waiting on the Lord in a similar fashion, his second arrival? How are we waiting? How would you describe your waiting upon the Lord's coming, his second advent. Do you wait in worship, right? Worship isn't simply the gathering on Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle. It's what we're to do 24-7. We're to live for his glory, not our own. And what's involved in your worship? How integral are prayer and fasting? As we consider Anna's life, and it was unique for sure, it would be a mistake not to consider our practice of worship in light of her example. Why would we consider her example? Actually, don't think that the biblical narrative is primarily written to give us examples, but to declare the glory of God uh, in his salvation given uh, for us in Christ. But Anna, secondarily, right, certainly offers an example of one who was devoted to God. And we know it's God's desire for us to live lives of prayer, to live lives of worship, and prayer being integral with that, and fasting as well. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we read there, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let me read it again. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The single most common prayer offered is the prayer of, loosely, what should I do here? Or what should I do there? It's a prayer of guidance. Father, what's your will for me? What college should I go to? Whom should I marry? What job should I take? What house should I buy? Without a doubt, the most common prayer prayed is a prayer for guidance. What's your will for me? It's interesting here to note that while we want to know God's will, he spells it out 
in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Are the questions we bring to our, our Father in heaven about what we should do, this or that, unimportant? No, they're not unimportant. But God is, firstly, concerned about who we are in any given situation. And secondly, concerned about what we do. Are we people of joyous praise? Be joyful always. Are we people of continual prayer? Are we giving thanks in all circumstances? This morning, can we say with confidence, this morning rather, we can say with confidence that we know God's will. I know God's will for my life. You've heard God's will in 1 Thessalonians 5 for your life. We know the type of people we're to be. We're to be joyful, thankful, prayerful, regardless of what we do, regardless of where we go to college or the job we have or who we marry. This is the type of person we're to be. And specifically, I want to drill down on the practice of prayer and the call to fasting. I'm afraid that we read stories like Anna's and we wrongly conclude that only a single person can truly live a spiritually significant life like hers. And Anna's life was significant, without a doubt. And her singleness, a widower, um, certainly helped her devote her life for 50 years. I'm, but I'm afraid that we think, though, well, if, if I did, if all I did was hang out around the church, if, if I had that luxury, then certainly I could pray and fast all the time. But who really has that kind of time, we ask ourselves. As a result, we can conclude that prayers to be something that retirees do. Or little old ladies or old men that uh, are housebound. And certainly those are significant seasons for the ministry of prayer. I'll be honest with you. There'll come a time in all of our lives where what we can primarily give ourselves to is prayer. It's, that time's coming. When we're housebound or, and we're waiting upon the Lord to see the Lord face to face and we're in the winter of our lives. But nowhere in Scripture does it seem to suggest that we should wait till then to make it of primary importance. You know, Jesus made time for prayer, and I find this tremendously instructive. I can't think of anyone busier in life than Jesus. I can't think of anybody who could have done more significant activities than Jesus. If Jesus made time for prayer, how much more should I be making time for prayer? Let me give you an example. Luke's Gospel uh, details how Jesus gave priority to prayer. After Jesus healed folks, he'd often say to them, now, don't tell anybody that I healed you. And I I'm not exactly sure why Jesus would do this, but it was fairly routine for him to heal somebody and say, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Of course, folks couldn't do that. <laughs> uh, people that hadn't walked or who had been plagued with leprosy when they're set free from it, they tend to run their mouths. And so crowds started to gather around Jesus, thousands of people pressing in on him. Look at what Luke writes about Jesus, the crowds, and his habit of prayer. But despite Jesus' instructions, that is to be quiet, about me healing you, the report of his power spread even faster. Vast crowds came to hear him preach, 
and to be healed of their diseases. But, but Jesus often, how much do we pray? Often, seldom, never. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness. Some translations say desolate places for prayer. I find this so interesting. He often withdrew to be alone with his father. He wasn't running towards the crowds. He was running away from the crowds. You know, modern preachers, I'll, tell you, I'll talk about my own temptations, would be to run towards the crowd. If thousands of people wanted to hear me speak, I can count maybe 150 in here. If thousands of people wanted to hear me speak, I, it would compete, guaranteed. It would compete for my time in prayer. I could easily be drawn away to the crowds. My point here is that no one on earth has ever done any more significant work than Jesus. His time on earth was of premium importance, and he prioritized prayer. Anybody else find that convicting? No, good. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of responsibility. There are, in fact, lots of people counting on us, friends, family, kiddos, parents. We have a lot of pressure. We have people that have expectations of our time, our money. These pressures often tempt us to push prayer to the back burner, thinking there are more significant things to do. That's not how Jesus operated. He had lots to do, and he, he pushed prayer to the front burner. People were being healed. He had the power to change people's lives for, forever. People were getting baptized. Eternal destinies were being changed. And he moved away from the crowd into the wilderness to pray. There's a short episode recorded in the Gospel of Mark in which we get the same type of description of who Jesus is. We get the description, he's busy, he's successful, he's pressed by the expectations and the needs of others, and he's not distracted. It's on the screen, Mark chapter 1, I love this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out to the solitary place alone, where he prayed. Mm. Some of you introverts are saying, I I'm down for that ministry, right? I'll be alone. It's interesting, Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus, and when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. It's kind of, uh, I'll, I'll read between the lines, what in the world are you doing out here? The work is over there. What? Stay on, stay on task here, Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus, get back into the village. You need to be helping people. Everyone's looking for you. Has, has someone said that to you before? Parents hear, hear that a lot. Where have you been, right? I need you. Employers hear that a lot. Employees hear that a lot. I couldn't reach you, right? 
If I could read into the disciples' words, I think that they were meaning, what are you thinking spending time in prayer? Why are you out here all alone? People need you. People expect you to be available. And you're sneaking off. There's even a sense in which, gosh, this is kind of selfish of you, Jesus. What is really the best use of our time? I ask myself that question fairly regularly. And, and I ask myself, do I believe prayer is a best use of my time? If you've ever taken an extended time in prayer, then you know the minute you sit down to do that work, to cultivate a relationship of greater intimacy with the Father, then your mind is flooded about all the things you should be doing. Anybody have that? So I got the habit, I would take a pen and paper into, into my times of prayer, and when I thought of something, I would write it down. Oh, you should, be, you should be doing this. When Simon's voice came into my mind, what are you doing out here? I would just write it down so I could put it aside. And if after writing it down, it still plagued me, I couldn't put it aside, then I would start praying about that issue. Because it apparently was so overwhelming to me that I needed to talk to my father about it. Jesus even gives us an example of the burdens he felt in how he prayed rather than plotting or planning. I am of the disposition, it's my wiring, to spend my time um, making to-do lists and ticking off the to-do lists, being highly organized and methodically accomplishing tasks. That's who I'm naturally wired that way. Near as I can tell, Jesus was not wired that way. He spent his time in prayer rather than plotting, planning, cultivating to-do lists, which is, which is fine. I need to hear the call to prayer more and yield to that. But it's interesting to learn what Jesus prayed about when he's out there all alone. Luke chapter 22. Fascinating, fascinating insight into Jesus' prayer life. This is the same guy who found him out in a solitary place and said, what the heck are you doing out here all alone? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I wonder if in hindsight, Simon was thankful that Jesus had spent a lot of time in prayer. Or maybe you have people in your family that you're keenly aware they pray. Well, their prayers are changing the trajectory of the world. When we pray, it changes. Simon Peter, the same guy who was trying to rush Jesus out of prayer, apparently his very faith in the establishment of the church was saved by Jesus' time in prayer. Now, this is a supremely interesting couple of verses, which maybe I'll get into on the podcast. I have all types of questions here. Um, to whom is Satan making his demands? Satan has demanded to sift you. 
And who is Satan that he can make demands of God the Father or of God the Son? And how does Jesus know what Satan has demanded about Peter's life? Do these questions occur to anybody else? How does Jesus know? Is it possible that Satan might be demanding my life or my children's faith in their lives? More important, and I've got lots of questions like that, but more important than the answers to all my questions is to make sure I don't miss the response of Jesus to the knowledge he had. Whatever knowledge we do have, scripturally, the call is to pray. So, I get that we have lots of questions about the role of Satan in the world. Why does God allow evil to continue? The role of prayer in the world. How does prayer change history? Does prayer change God's mind? Lots of questions about prayer. But, but don't get hung up, hung up on your questions such that you do not pray. However this knowledge came to Jesus, and Jesus' response was, it was not preaching at Peter. I wonder how many of us have kids that we think if we raised our voice more effectively, their trajectory would change. Or loved ones, family members. For years and years and years, I tried to argue my father into the faith. It wasn't very effective. He's bright, he was brighter than I was and and then it occurred to me, this isn't an argument to be won. This is something that God must do in his heart. So I shifted gears, stopped arguing, stopped badgering, coming at him with all my supposed insights and started praying. It's interesting to see how Jesus handles Simon Peter, who's fairly ornery. The man was ornery. The night Jesus was betrayed, he cut a guy's ear off. When's the last time you cut somebody's ear off? When's the last time we let somebody lead a church? He was the leader of the church who had violently attacked another man with a sword and cut his ear off. Simon was not an easy guy. He's a piece of work. And Jesus didn't come at him with, Simon, here are the seven reasons that you need to, or the. And I'm not saying that teaching our children or just dialoguing with those who are far from faith isn't important. It is important. What I'm saying is, I see the American church consistently opting for arguments with people over prayer for people. All right. Let's, uh, let's do application, all right? Now, I, I keep a log of all my sermons, the texts, the stories I tell, uh, I, I think I've preached on prayer more than any other topic I've ever preached on. So if my application points get, are getting weak, I'm trying to come up with new application points. Well, don't hesitate to let me know. First application point. Ask for forgiveness of our prayerlessness. We know that God's will is for us to be people of prayer. We are to be praying continually, which means that prayerlessness is a sin. If you seldom or never pray, the appropriate first step 
is to talk to your father about that. Another way to say the same thing is to begin the best way, the best way to carve out a trajectory for more in prayer in your life is to begin by enjoying the forgiveness offered to you through faith in Christ. I'm afraid that some of us don't grow in prayer because we don't know what to do with our historic prayerlessness. I'm afraid some of us never get, get to growing because we don't know what to do with our sin. And it's clear from Scripture, Christ died so that we can have conversation with our Father. And so the prayerlessness in the American suburban church, the first step is to repent, to admit and confess that sin. It's like the college kid who hasn't called home in a month, and the longer it goes on, the least likely or the less he wants to do so. Folks, there's no reason to let our failures in prayer determine our future in prayer. There's no reason. You can talk. For some of us, the first thing that we need to do is have a conversation with our Father about our prayerlessness and ask for forgiveness. Second point of application, pray that God will move you to pray. Our greatest hope in growing as men and women of prayer is not our discipline. It's not my willpower. New Year's resolutions are fine. Discipline is a part of discipleship. But Jesus said in the clearest fashion, apart from me, you can do zilch, nada, nothing. So if you want to grow in prayer, the first step is, I am, I'm sorry I'm prayerless. Would you change my life? Would you make me a person of prayer? Guaranteed, that's, a, that's something the Lord wants to answer. And then you may talk to him about what, it occurs to me, what barriers are there to me becoming a person of prayer, increasingly so. And he'll reveal those to you. Third, hang with people who pray. That's my email address. Prayer is more contagious than COVID. Took me all week to come up with that. <laughs> if you want to grow in prayer, then find the people who are praying and hang out with them. I'm in prayer every Sunday morning, 7.45 to 8.15, and every Wednesday night, 7 to 8. It's a Zoom prayer meeting. Email me. Would you leave that up there, Jonathan? Email me, and I'll send you the Zoom link weekly. And we'd love to have you. Come hang out with this group that prays faithfully. It is hard to grow in prayer alone. The disciples were so taken by Jesus' habits in prayer, they said, teach us to pray. Show us how to pray. They apparently at some point recognized prayer is pivotal to, to the power that Christ has. All of the pronouns in the Lord's Prayer, we have them on the screen here, are personal, are uh, plural possessive. Our Father, you're to be praying it with people. Give us our daily bread. You're to be praying with people. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. You're to be praying with people. Lead us not into temptation. Us. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver the church. And certainly you're to be praying alone as well. But it's very hard to grow in prayer. 
It's because we do this emotionally. It's hard to grow in prayer when you're alone. We go in seasons and out of seasons where we have interest, readiness, the, the fortitude. We have people that join the prayer call and they leave their screen blank and their mic muted. Some of them are driving around the suburbs is a reason, which is great. They're with us in prayer. Utilize some prayer helps. Oh, let me point this out real quick, the fasting period. It is our habit to begin the new year in fasting. And so we'll begin uh, January 11th through the 31st, 21 days of fasting. There's a FAQ sheet on fasting on our website. You click on it if this is new for you. Uh, most of you guys have been around the church long enough that you, you probably expected this would come. Uh, three weeks of prayer and fasting. Join us in that. You won't be doing it alone. Um, love to have you do that. Uh, I think it's the fourth point of application. Utilize some prayer helps. Matt this morning read from a book titled The Valley of Vision. And when I say utilize prayer helps, what I mean is um, lots of folks report not knowing what to say when they go to prayer. Um, and we need some support. That's why we pray together too. We learn. When I hear the Larsons pray, I learn how the Lord has grown them and moved them and what they're praying for. They're in the prayer call twice weekly. But we need some prayer helps. And so the Valley of Vision is a, it's a book of Puritan prayers. A friend gave me a copy as well. And if you want prayer helps, I would not buy a book on prayer. I'd buy a book of prayers. Uh, lots of books on prayer, um, but that grows the head, not the activity in many cases. So get a, get a book that helps you uh, pray. Again, my email is up there. Email me, and I'll give you a long laundry list of prayer helps. So I pray the Psalms. The Lord, over the last few years, I, there was a, a season in my life where I didn't understand why the Psalms were included in the canon of Scripture. Isn't that horrible to say? But now, as I grow older, I realize, oh my gosh, what a wealth of emotion. We read Psalm 43 this morning in our time of prayer. It's a psalm full of complaint. And so from the psalmist, we learn how to complain to our Father. You make your way through the Psalms over a course of the year, and you'll ride the roller coaster of every possible emotion. And you'll learn how to pray in those emotions, in those seasons. It's powerful. Finally, set goals for time in prayer and work towards growth. This last point of application, oh, no, it's almost the last. Um, set goals for time in prayer. So for the long time, um, I would, I'd set a timer uh, just because I lacked, you know, the attention. And so all the smartphones have a timer. Start at one minute, pray a minute. Go to a minute and a half. Go to two minutes. When the buzzer goes off, you can get up and move on with your day. Some of us have, can't imagine praying an hour because we don't have the habit of praying for a minute. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, said to the disciples, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. The suburban church needs to strengthen its discipline with regard to prayer. We need to go from prayerlessness to increases incrementally in a prayer life. The strengthening the flesh is just a, it's a routine. I tell my kids, you get better at what you do every day. The things that you do every day, and that goes for sin and godliness. You get better at what you do every day. 
Finally, here's the last one. Pray during your favorite activities. Scripture tells us that every good gift is from God. So whatever it is you love to do, that point at which you feel recreated, gardening, jogging, walking, lifting weights, listening to music, playing your instrument, reading a good book, cleaning your closet, whatever you feel renewed at doing, bring your Father into those activities. Because every good gift is from Him. And talk to Him about what's going on. All right, good? Let's pray. And then we'll sing and close. Father, you're good to us. Thank you that you've welcomed us into your presence and that you want us to pray. I pray that 2022 will be a, a year of increased prayer for the people of Glowing Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.